you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. On the 2022 Queer Money Podcast listener survey, you told us you want more tools to help you out with retirement. Right. So today we've invited our longtime friend on the show, Kirk Chisholm, the founder and advisor at Innovative Advisory Group, who helps investors maximize their unique assets like real estate, precious metals, and even horses. Horses? Yes. Horses. <laughs> You're listening to Cream Money Podcast, episode number 380. And today we're sharing how self-directed IRAs are the retirement tool that you may not ever have heard of, but they may be a good fit for you. So let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. So welcome, Kirk. finally, after all these years, to the Queer Money Podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. This will be fun. Yeah, we've known you for for quite, I don't even know how long, but we were in the same mastermind for at least two or three years. And we've talked about every various times of having you come on the show and now it's finally happening. So thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, glad to be here. Awesome. So we're going to talk about the sexy, exciting topic of <laughs> self-directed IRAs. <laughs> so what for, to create a baseline for all of us, because maybe David and I are, aren't completely on board, what is a self-directed IRA? So basically, a self-directed IRA, so the term's actually interesting. All IRAs are self-directed, but an IRA is an individual retirement account. It's basically a way for you to put away money for your retirement, and it can grow tax-deferred in the traditional IRA, and there's a Roth IRA, which is it grows tax-free. The point is the government wants you to save money for retirement so that you're not a burden on the state. The term self-directed is actually can be used in two different forms. So it can be a little confusing. All IRAs are self-directed, meaning that you put in the money, you direct where it's invested. It's totally up to you. No one else is controlling that. A lot of people use the term self-directed IRA to distinguish between an IRA that can invest in traditional securities like stocks, bonds, and mutual funds and an IRA that can invest in real estate, horses, gold, crypto, whatever it might be. Horses. Um, I didn't know horses was, were an option. <laughs> they they are an option if you're such a person. Okay. <laughs> they're, okay. they're an option. Can I put my dogs in a self-directed IRA? That would be very convenient. <laughs> Only if they're an investment. <laughs> yeah. So it, there's basically... The Internal Revenue Code does not tell you what you can invest in. It only tells you what you cannot invest in. And what you cannot invest in is collectibles, life insurance on yourself, and S-Corps. Everything else is is virtually allowed. Collectibles. So that would be things like stamps or baseball cards or NFTs, things like that, right? That doesn't include 
things like art or divide the line a little bit there. <laughs> so there's there are rules and there's exceptions to the rules and there's exceptions Always. to those exceptions, right? <laughs> it so, is the IRS, right? <laughs> correct, right? And and you know these these tax attorneys have to make money by by going to tax court, so there's <laughs> a lot <laughs> right. of loopholes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so things like collectible plates, collectible coins, beanie babies, stamps, artwork, it's all considered collectibles. And actually, if you want to know some really fascinating stuff. So when the IRA was created, it was around the time when Nazi art was being found. And th so the reason that they carved out collectibles is because they were afraid that people would take that artwork and put it into a retirement account where you could not get it. Oh, so the IRA rules are so strong. It's a trust, basically. They're so strong that you couldn't actually get it. So that's why collectibles are in there. No other reason. Wow. Wow. That's a little bit of trivia I'd never yeah. would have known about. Yeah. So it was, it was a ba basically a way to prevent the artwork that had been stolen by the Nazis from being locked away and, and never being able to be given back to the people it was stolen from. Huh. Correct. That's, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah. And so technically you can't invest in artwork, but you can invest in an art dealer uh, company that that has artwork in it there's some roundabouts to the rules you know so if you if you wanted to do something like that then you'd have to structure it properly and you know it has to be legitimate where this isn't just a you know an end run around the rules you have to have it a legitimate business and legitimate investment purposes but one of the, one of the things you can't do is you can't personally benefit from your ira and this is a, a big one that we get a lot of requests for is oh i have this property i want to put it in my ira i'm like well you can't if you want it like you have to buy it from a third party it has to be arm's length there's other parts of it which is you know let's say your ira owns a piece of rental property you can't go fix the roof you can't fix the toilet you know you can't do what they call sweat equity but you can hire somebody to do it you can do administrative functions you, know, you can hire somebody you can you can pay the bills you know things like that but you can't do the work yourself so it's just a, I guess it brings up so many questions about what you can do, what you can't do, what, and that's why you hire somebody like Kirk. Well, that's just, that's what I was just going to say. It sounds like this is not something that is for the novice investor, right? This is not for somebody who's brand new. This is probably not the step that I would take if I'm opening up a Roth account tomorrow and I've never invested in my Roth account or my traditional IRA. This is more likely something that someone would use who already has built up something in their portfolio. Is that kind of right? So there's just two parts to that. One is the amount, right? If you have $5,000, it's going to be really hard to make this you know, a viable strategy oh, in part yeah. because costs associated with it, you know, so if you wanted to buy, I don't know, let's say $5,000 into like physical gold, it's going to cost money for the custodian. It's going to cost money for the depository. It's going to cost money to buy and sell the gold. So, so if you think of all the transactional or the annual costs, it's not going to be economically viable for smaller amounts. My Baseline, I usually tell people is right around 50,000 is when you want to start, you can start looking. Now, that being said, if you're making 300% returns on your money at, at that $5,000 investment, go at it, right? I, I'm just looking at it as percentages, right? If you're mm -hmm. thinking you're going to get four to 5%, 
I wouldn't do it at all. And percentage gains, I usually look at like 8%, 7-8% is kind of the minimum to say, is this even worth doing? Because realistically, you want to find strategies that are going to be within your level of competence and also strategies that you can really take advantage of the of the tax deferred or tax free structure. So for example, if you were to invest in something that made like 700% returns a year, because you know, it's what you do for a living, then do it, right? I, I highly recommend people do things within their level of competence. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you're let's say you do fix and flips, right? And let's say you find this property, you get it for 70% discount for whatever reason. And you decide to, let's say you end up buying it for 50,000. Well, let me just make the number simple. Let's say the property is worth 100,000, you buy it for 30. And you decide, well, hey, I want to flip this to somebody for 80, right? And then you're making your 50K on there. And you can do that inside a Roth IRA. You can do it within like a month. That's a pretty good return, right? Mm -hmm. And you can do that quickly and easily. And you just you just made a multiple of your money you don't have to do that more than a few times a year to make good money on that. Now, everyone's different. I know people that do, you know, horses and they train horses or making 100, 200% returns a year on horses, but it's what they do for a living. You know, so I think if you're within your level of competence, you can really take advantage of this. If you're just buying something that somebody else is offering, you know, it's give or take. It depends what it is. Like I said, the return should be substantial enough to make it worth the effort because it is a lot of work. It's not like buying a stock where you click a button and you're done. This is right. this is more work and the costs are higher. The custodians charge more. It's not like a TD or Fidelity or Schwab where it's it's not even you're not even getting charged for trades now. You know, the custodians charge differently for the alternative assets. And people might think, well, that's expensive. Yes, but you know, these people have to make money. So they're charging what they have to charge in order to make it a viable enterprise. And there's 50 companies out there that do that. And I always get asked which one's the best. There's there's no single best one. It's just whichever is best for your investing strategy. So if I'm only hearing about self-directed IRAs for the first time, I've got a pretty solid retirement account. I'm on target to retire between 55, 65. I'm not necessarily stressed about my financial picture future financial picture, but I'm curious if self-directed IRA might be right for me. How would I know if this is something I might want to consider? What, what, what would be the next steps if this interview is the first time I'm really hearing about this topic? Yeah, it's a good question. There's The problem with self-directed IRAs is there's a lot of bad information out there. And if you go looking, you're going to do a lot of searching because you know people like companies like TD Ameritrade have ever Google ads, about self-directed IRAs, but that's very different from the self-directed IRAs we're talking about. So that the word self-directed is accurate because all IRAs are self-directed, but the way people use it is typically to refer to IRAs that can invest in alternatives outside of the market. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ plus community through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. 
on our website, we've got a ton of resources, free resources that people can go and just learn more because this is a deep rabbit hole you can go down. The way I would think about it is any investing you should do should be within your level of competence. I don't particularly feel like the stock market is a great place to be at the moment because of overvaluation and risk and all that. But frankly, if you don't have an asset that you're an expert in, you should probably stick with the traditional side. This is a complicated area that requires, it doesn't require somebody like me. I mean, you know, that's what we do, but there are plenty of people who do it themselves. But you have to be really meticulous because the rules, the rules for traditional assets and alternative assets are the same, but you don't see them in the traditional side. So when you're investing in stocks, you don't see these rules because it's all taken care of for you. It's seamless. Mm -hmm. But realizing you have to get an annual valuation on you know, whatever, let's say you're investing in real estate, you have to get an annual valuation on that real estate. And if you don't, then you could cause yourself some tax troubles, right? That's a simple thing that's required. If you don't do the documentation right, you could present some problems for yourself. So I don't recommend this to people. Like if you have something that you find is really interesting, going to get you a good return, you understand it, you're, it's going to be a better opportunity than the stock market, then do it. But if you don't, I wouldn't go down this rabbit hole just because it sounds sexy. Because it does. I'll be honest with you. People are going to throw these cool investments. So you can invest in this property, make 30% a year in your IRA and don't pay taxes on it. It all sounds sexy. But right. you know, when you get into the weeds of it, it's not always sexy. You know What happens a lot is people get amped up because they read a newsletter, they heard somebody talking about it, and they're all excited. So they go open up an account at one of these custodians, and then the money just sits there because they don't know what to do. Mm. And that's one of the challenges, right? It's like, oh, all right, I'm going to go do this. And they're like, what do I do next? And no one has any idea what to do next. And the custodian doesn't tell you because they can't technically give you advice. We can, but you know, we're probably the only advisor in the space in the whole entire country. There are four others, but they don't advertise because they don't want the business. So <laughs> this is not something that's scalable in the advisory world. It's complex. It's not something, it's not even a big space, right? There's not a ton of people want to do this. But you see people like Mitt Romney, who has $110 million in his IRA because of stuff like this. I mean, you would have to get around 30% returns a year, starting from when you were like 25 or 30 to get that kind of a money in your IRA. Like it's just it's just not feasible. However, there are 412 I think people in the US that have IRAs bigger than 25 million. You know what the average balance of those 412 people are? You're probably 200... talking like tech tech millionaires or billionaires, right? <laughs> well, this is back in 2010. So this is 257 million is the average. Wow. Of those 480. So if you run the numbers, there's at least, I know at least one person who has a billion in his IRA, in a Roth IRA. That's actually public. Peter Thiel has it, but there's others too. So it's something you could, if you know what you're doing, you could really take advantage of the tax code. The challenge is, is are you one of those people? If not, then I wouldn't necessarily go down this rabbit hole unless you you have a reason to. It's just harder. Like it's it's not it's a it's a great area. I love doing it. We see I see people who are making four hundred to fourteen hundred percent returns annually in this area doing stuff that they know. 
you're not going to get that in stocks. You just, it's just not. So, so it sounds it, like that's the caveat though. If, if you already have this asset or you're already doing this thing and I'm assuming then your, your accountant comes back to you year after year that you're, you're paying these egregious taxes on the, these things that maybe at that point, it might make sense to consider a self-directed IRA when you're already sort of the opportunity makes sense at that time. Yeah. Your accountant's not going to tell you about this. This is. We're talking most... to our accountant today. I'm going to ask him about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Most don't even know that it, it's a thing. And the ones who do usually give you, yeah, I don't think you should do that. And the reason they say it is because they don't know enough about it and they're going to have to go look it up and become an expert for you. And they don't want to do that. So they're like, yeah, you don't want to do that. Billable um, hours, baby. <laughs> oh no, they, they don't need that during this time of year. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They, they, they don't. Yeah. It's, it's funny because accountants are, they're great people that really work hard and don't get the, I guess the respect or the appreciation that they deserve. However, you know, in things like, self-directed IRAs are options. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many accountants have told my clients, oh, options, those are risky. Like, well, we're doing covered calls. Those are the most conservative things you could find. Like, no, 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 those are risky. It's, it's not that It's not that what they're saying is accurate. That what they're saying is, I don't want to have to look into this <laughs> and I'm, I'm worried about you, but I don't know enough about it. So it's easier just to say no <laughs> than it is to figure it out. And I think right. that's the default for most of them. So you should, if accountant says it's dangerous or it's, you know, you shouldn't do it, you should look into it yourself. Cause it's not that they, it's just that they don't know. That's right. all. Yeah. So I guess set for me then, what does this look like? You, you said, I probably shouldn't consider this unless I have about $50,000 at least to invest, but you said it's hard and it can be expensive. So what am I looking at in terms of average fees each year and how much paperwork and all that kind of give some color to that? Yeah. So in some parts, it's going to depend on what you're doing and what the asset is. Some assets are really simple and some assets are more complicated. Like if you're investing in a horse, we've learned about this because we had to do it for a client, but you know, horses have passports, believe it or not. You know, there's all sorts of things that have to be done for the asset. So I'm going to leave out the investment costs for the investment itself, because that's going to vary widely depending on the investment. But just for this, if you're going to set it up, the custodian will charge a fee. There are custodians that charge a asset-based fee. So they'll charge a percentage of the assets more or less. And there'll be other custodians that charge a transaction fee. And then there's hybrids of the two. The fees are all over the map. And it and you know the reason that there's no single best custodian is because it depends what you're doing. If you're buying one asset and you're never touching it, transaction-based fees are probably going to be the, the, the cheapest. If you're doing 10 transactions a month, the asset base one may be cheaper, right? You have to determine, and a lot of this is what we do working with clients is strategy. Like how do we strategize the best way to approach it? Are we using an LLC? Are we not using one? You know, how, how is the best approach based on what they need to do? So the cost I usually tell people is somewhere around 1% a year. Now, it's not necessarily the case, but I use that as my baseline. Like, let's just assume it's going to cost 1%. You know, it might be half a percent or something. But if you're trying to put together an estimate, I'd use that to start. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're buying real estate, like I said, you have valuations every year. Now, depending on what kind of valuation, you know, most assets, you could just get away with like a book value from your accountant. Now, the IRS says it has to be a qualified appraisal, which you know, it could cost you three to five grand a year. 
And that is, if you're taking distributions, you're going to need to get that. The IRS will require it. If you're not taking distributions, it's kind of a gray area where a lot of people are able to get away with evaluation because, frankly, the valuations don't really matter. It's only if you're taking distributions that they matter because, mm. you know, they're running a calculus based on the value of the account. And if the value of the account is a dollar when it should be a hundred thousand dollars, then the IRS is going to work. Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, sorry, I didn't mean to make it up about politics, but I did. <laughs> right. So it, it seems like there are a lot of factors to consider here about what kind of asset you would put in a self-directed IRA. What is one of the most common you see people using as their... It's got to be real estate, right? Real estate. Right. And to be honest, folks, that's when we brought this up to Kirk probably, what, about two or three years ago. That's what we were we were thinking about as well was, is there a way for us to use some of the assets in our IRA to purchase real estate? And you start bringing up a lot of these rules, right? The rules that you can't buy it from yourself. You can't fix it up yourself. You can't, all the investment has to come from within the account and all that. And I think our desire and interest went pretty quick. Because yeah. <laughs> the like... night before we had martinis and we were going to be rich in about a year. <laughs> and then we talked to Kirk and went, went. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Right. But you brought up the point that if you're specializing in something, this could make a lot of sense for you. And we know that there are a number of people in our community who are really good at finding and flipping real estate. Do you think that that could potentially be something that they would put into or use some of their retirement assets for? So they could maybe peel away $100,000 from their current assets, put it in, in cash, and then use it as something for investing in real estate through their IRA to build up their retirement portfolio. Yeah. So real estate is the most common asset by a lot. I think like 40% of self-directed IRAs own real estate. And then if you include real estate related, like private mortgages, tax liens, things like that, then it, it's probably another 20%. So it's it's wow. really significant amount into real estate. And the reason is, is because a, it's so prevalent, and B, it's what people know, right? You know, people talk about, and you know, Peter Lynch says, "Invest in what you know." This is what people know. You, you either own a property or you're renting a property, but you understand how real estate works to some degree. So it's very common, you know. After the real estate, it comes to like LLCs, you know, companies and what have you. But yeah, so real estate is is something that most people understand, and. A lot of people ask me like, oh, should I do this? I'm like, well, it depends on the numbers, right? Yeah. So real estate is a business. And a lot of people say it's a passive investment. It's not a passive. There's nothing passive about it. You know, it's it's an <laughs> investment. You. I'm waiting right? to reply yeah. on the couch. We have, this, but we have this happen. discussion on Twitter on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, I just tweeted that yesterday or two days ago. I said, what's a something a lot of people think is a passive investment, but really isn't. And by far, real estate is the number one answer that people keep on saying over and over again. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing passive about it. It's only passive if you've never done it before. It's like, oh, that's that's cool. <laughs> we can buy it and just make money. Like, Mindy nope. Jensen makes it sound so easy. <laughs> I love yeah. that. I'm going to have to share that one. Real estate is only passive if you've never done it before. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, real estate is one of those things that if you look at the numbers and you're making a good return, which 
if you bought real estate in the last five years, you're probably not making good returns because the numbers just stink. But I would imagine in the next few years, as interest rates continue to creep up or at least stay high, then we're going to see real estate prices drop. I think real estate prices are going to drop 10 to 20% this year, depending on where, where you live in the country. So it's, I think it could get ugly, which you know, isn't a bad thing if you're looking to buy real estate, because now the numbers can actually start to look more attractive. So I always tell people like, what kind of return are you going to get from your real estate? If your return is going to get like 6%, I'd say, no, don't do it. I personally buy in cash flow. I don't buy in appreciation because I can't predict appreciation, but I can predict cash flow. So, you know, when we're looking at rental properties, you know, my advice to people is don't buy anything cash flowing less than 7% in your IRA because you're going to have costs. It's going to be a nuisance. It's just, it's just more of a nuisance than buying it outright. Now, if you don't have any other choice, fine. But you know, if you're getting 6% or 5% in real estate, go buy a US Treasury. I mean, you can almost get 5% now. So right. you know, there will be times where you're going to get 10% plus cash flows from real estate. And I think that time is coming. So you know, be patient and I'm sure you'll find some. But you can get private mortgages, hard money. You can get that in the 10% to 15% range. So do that, right? There's less hassle. You don't have to manage... You don't have to fix toilets, manage tenants. You just, what they call it, tenants, toilets. And there's another T in there. I forget which one it is, but there's, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I always forget. But anyway, the, the point is, is you just get a private mortgage on real estate and just, you know, do that. And you don't have to worry about it. You just collect your check. That's that's actually a passive investment. Unless, of course, you lend to the wrong person, then it's no longer passive. But that's how you should be thinking about it. It's like, what is the easiest way to invest my money to get the yield I want? You know, don't get wrapped up in what the asset is. Find out like what is the best kind of risk to reward trade off that I can find and invest there. You know, that's how I look at it. That's, you know, frankly, I, I don't know, this could go sideways, but this is why I like crypto. It's not because I like crypto, it's because I could make 20 times of my money or I could lose whatever I put into it. That's a good trade off, assuming that the odds are 50 50 of one versus the other. You know, go to the casino every day of the week with those odds. <laughs> you know, like that doesn't exist in many places in finance. So I think it, whether crypto is going to be successful, or not, I don't know. But I know that the odds of winning versus losing and the payoff is significantly in the favor of owning it. So, you know, you have to look at all investments with that lens of like, what's my trade off of risk versus reward? You're so pragmatic. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as sexy as I was hoping. <laughs> I can make it sexier if you want. <laughs> well, what I think is interesting, I, you know, where I'm seeing a lot of, I don't know if you remember this, but I'm, I'm getting a lot of parallels for when we had Jay Fleischman, a bankruptcy attorney on our podcast several years ago. And he's like, I'm probably one of the few professionals who tells their clients, you really don't want me to do my job. There are better options out there than for me to do my job for you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think one of the challenges we've all we've all gotten complacent. We've all gotten lazy, right? Since two thousand and nine, the markets have gone virtually straight up. And yes, we've had a few dips here and there. I mean, COVID wasn't <laughs> COVID was. It's funny. I look at risk versus volatility, and risk is basically the permanent impairment of capital. Volatility is just you know the market's bouncing around, and. Pretty much from 2000 to 2013, you lost 13 years of time. That I would call a permanent impairment of capital. You lost compounding of 13 years. Mm -hmm. 
because the markets went up and down, but basically they weren't positive until July of 2013. So all that time was lost. Whereas COVID, the markets dropped 20, 30, 32%, something like that. And then they came back and they were up up a lot to mm-hmm. the end of the year. That's volatility, oddly enough, even though it shouldn't have been, but that was volatility. So we've had a really easy time where everybody thinks, oh, we just buy the dips and it'll come back. And the problem with that is that's not historically accurate. We've had a very easy time in the last, what is that, 15 years? And now we're in a period where things aren't so easy. And, you know, if you look back at history, look back at the 70s and the early 80s, things were very different where, you know, we had high interest rates, low asset prices, you had a lot of volatility. I wouldn't call it volatility, but, you know, you had oil shocks, you had bad policy when it comes out of Washington. There's just a lot of, it was just messy. Like the seventies were messy in so many, so many ways. And I think, you know, there's, there's many historical overlays that would suggest that we're going to be entering a period like that again. And if that's the case, you have to really, you know, be careful about what you're investing in. And I'm not suggesting you go put all your cash under the mattress. I'm just saying you just have to be a lot more thoughtful now. You know, like growth stocks have been a no-brainer for the last, you know, 12 years. Maybe growth stocks aren't the best place to be now. Maybe value stocks are coming back in a favor, which I think they are. But, you know, what I think doesn't matter. But you should consider that your old habits of what you were used to, buying growth stocks, buying the dip, buy and hold, all these things, you know, going overweight into equities, all of those things are changing, right? I mean, bonds were getting you zero percent returns. Now you're getting four and a quarter. You're getting four and a half. I can get four and a half to four point seven on U.S. Treasuries, as close to quote unquote guaranteed as you can get, and you're getting that from the government. You're you're getting that very few other places with very low to if any risk. So why would I invest in something that's paying me 3% when I can get something from the government from 4.5 to 4.7? I mean, for God's sake, I'm sure you talk about this in the show, the the iSavings bonds. You could have gotten 9.6, I think it was, six months ago. And now you're getting, I think it's, I forget what you're getting now. It's maybe 6.5, but whatever it is, you're, you're, you're getting good rates from the government that are in pegged to inflation, which... It's pretty nice when you really think about it. Like you're not getting that. Like, why would I take a chance on equities if I can get six and a half percent from the government? Yeah, it changes the equation of what's now attractive for investors. So people aren't going to be looking at equities the same way. They're going to be looking at fixed income and saying, hey, this is I mean, right now, pension funds are looking at fixed income and saying, how can I get more of this? Because they're underperforming in equities and that'll probably continue. So Anything you're looking at, you have to change your lens on the world. How were you looking, investing, and what do you need to change now to have a different lens to look at the world in the way that it should be seen? Not the old lens, but the new lens. And that's hard, you know, especially if you've been in the market for only 10 years and this is all you're you're used to. I started in December of 99. I saw a recession, a bear market for the first, you know, two, three years in the business. Right. And then- you know, and then I saw 2008, saw 2020, saw 2017. For, I mean, you know, I, I've seen a lot in the last 20 some odd years. And it, the markets don't do very frequently what they did from 2009 till 
2021. It's just not common, but that's all a lot of people know. So it's going to, it's going to cause a lot of people pain because they don't, the rules of the road that they're accustomed to are changing and they don't, no one's advertising this, that they're changing. All I know is that you said you were going to make the conversation sexier and then you bring up bonds and pensions. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> sexier Sexy for the age that bonds. we are. <laughs> Should we talk about NFTs and crypto again? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think this is, this is a great topic to cover because I think our listeners are looking for what options are out there. And then part of that might be the fear of the volatility that we've sort of experienced the last couple of months, especially, and sort of trying to figure out what is the next thing that I should do. And while self-directed IRAs might be a sexy topic or they might have heard about it, it sounds like what you're saying, that that's a very niche product for a very specific demographic of, of investors. Probably most of us don't fit into that category, not necessarily don't qualify, but don't necessarily fit into that category as an ideal investment strategy. And your suggestion is probably maybe looking to the less sexier side of the equation that people have been sort of ignoring or haven't needed to look at over the last 15, 20 years. The way I look at investing is is very different than most. And I think most people have a, a theme. They've got, you know, they've got something they beat the drum on and they don't do much else. So there are people who are permabulls, the market's always going up, or they're perma bears, the, the world's always ending, or they're gold bugs, or everyone's got their thing. That's not how I look at the world. I look at the world as, you know, what is working, what makes sense now. And self-directed IRAs are great. This is what I do. I mean, you know, I make money from this. This is what I do professionally, but you know, it's not for everybody. And I think what people need to realize is it's not about one thing. It's about having more tools that you can use to find the best strategy for you. For most people, they should probably be indexing. I mean, frankly, it's I'm, I'm not an indexer. That's not what I talk about. But, you know, I struggle with this because I get asked all the time by friends and family, like, what should I do with my money? And like, if I tell you what to do and then things change, you're going to come back and say, that didn't work. I'm like, I, I don't, I can't give you anything that you, you know, I would have to advise you all the time in order to actually do that. Well, there's no simple, like all weather strategy. That's like, Oh, this will work all the time. It used to be the 60, 40 was that strategy. Mm -hmm. And it worked from 1980 until 2021 because the bond yields are dropping. So it, bonds were safe for that 40 years, but now they're no longer safe as we saw last year. So there is no all-weather strategy where that applies. But I think that the way I would look at it is if you have an asset that's attractive, right? If you have something cool and sexy that you do that you're an expert in, like flipping houses or you know, let's say professionally you're doing something that if let's say you're selling widgets, I don't know, I'm just bringing up an example. I can't think of a good one, but let's say you're selling widgets and you have a way to buy widgets at a discount and then sell them to somebody else. And you can do that in your IRA. Great. Do that. Like whatever it is, like something that, that separates you from everybody else, you know what your returns are from this other thing. You know, this guy who is basically buying dressage horses from Europe, training them and selling them to really, really rich people. He was making like 100 to 200% returns within like a three month period. Do that. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not saying everybody should do that, but he should. Mm -hmm. So find that one thing to do. Cause if you're, if you don't have that one thing, then self-directed IRAs really aren't for you. I wouldn't go around looking for an asset in self-directed IRAs because you're just looking for trouble. Mm 
There are plenty of people, and this is what I hate about the space. It's the wild west. There are so many unlicensed, unregulated people in this space selling you products because, hey, you can make 30% in real estate and do it in your IRA. And they have no repercussions for screwing up. So I would just be careful. I wouldn't go around looking for investment because that's like walking around the ghetto and saying, can somebody take my money? Like, it, it's just like, yeah, somebody's going to come up and rob you, right? Like, you're just asking for trouble. It's the same thing with this. If you're walking around with money saying, what should I do? Someone's going to take advantage of you. So what I would do, you know, we have some research on our website that talk about this, like, start with investment first, you know, figure out what do I want to invest in? And then from there, figure out, do I want to do that in my retirement account? And then figure out the retirement account. But if you do the retirement account first and you're looking for investments, it could be five years you know, before you actually find one, I, I wouldn't, I, I just wouldn't take that approach. I, I would, I would make the investment first, find your strategy and then figure out if it makes sense because you can do virtually anything in your retirement account. It's right. just a function of whether it makes sense financially. And, you know, so the real estate thing we get asked a lot, sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't, but the extra work aside, you have to put in for the self-directed IRA. Like I said, if you're making really good returns, do it. This is why I do this. Like, it is so much fun to find cool and interesting things. Like, did you know that that people in Alaska have fishing rights that they make like 80% returns on a year? No. I mean, That's it's ridiculous idea. some of the things that are out there, like Everybody motion Alaska picture. Everybody has this or just certain people? <laughs> no, certain people. <laughs> Fishermen. <laughs> We're moving to Alaska. I was like, people I have a friend that, in Alaska. That, I was going to ask him about this. Yeah, people people that, I, well, I think they get uh, money back, actually, from their taxes. They, they yeah, yeah, one of the few states that make he money. He tells me that every yeah. year. Then I call him a socialist. <laughs> <laughs> and he's Republican. So it's great. <laughs> I'm sure he loves that. Yes. <laughs> Well, I think this has been very, very important and a lot of great inf information. You've talked about your website several times. What's your website? What's your podcast? Where can our listeners find you if they if they want to dig deeper into this topic? If or they have it, a specialty, let's or, put it out there. If, they're, right. if, they're, if they have a specialty, they fit this and think that this might be an option for them. Yeah. So yeah, if you have a specialty or if, if you're looking to get outside the markets, I mean, we do have stuff that we do for clients that, that we're, we're experts in. So you can go to innovativewealth.com. And on the website, there's a ton of resources for self-directed IRAs. Pretty much you could become an expert just based on the resources on our website. Also, we have a podcast that we do twice a week now, oddly enough, and it's called Money Tree Podcast, Money Tree Investing Podcast. You know, we're live on LinkedIn every Friday and we talk about, you know, we just talk about random stuff on the show, but mostly investing related. So yeah, and that's moneytreepodcast.com. And you were on that podcast once, right? Yes, I was. There you go. Yeah, you're on live at FinCon. Yes. Love to have you guys back on in front of an audience. <laughs> a <little> scary. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kirk, for coming on the show and sharing this wealth of information. I'm sure that out of the myriad listeners that we have, there's probably a handful of people that this might be something they should consider, and one of those people might actually do it. <laughs> so thank well, you so for much. Me on. Of course, we appreciate it. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you, Kirk, for sharing such great information with us and our audiences. To you, our listeners, thank you again for listening. Here's your queer money takeaway from this episode. Self-directed IRAs are a niche investment tool for niche investors. If you think that it's a category that 
fits you, we encourage you to visit InnovativeWealth.com to research all of the free material Kirk mentioned during this episode. Then if you want to learn more, connect with Kirk through the same website. Then join us this Thursday to find out the best retirement city in Wyoming for LGBTQ plus folks in our new bonus series. And then next Tuesday, when we talk with way gay serial real estate investor, Tom Brickman of The Frugal Gay, about how to find the right investment property for you, no matter how expensive you think your market might be. Thank you and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.